0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church. I want to welcome you to uh, this next installment in our series entitled FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions. Today, inside your bulletin, you will find an outline with a question at the top of it. It's simply entitled, Can Intelligent People Have Faith? This is a question that I am asked often, and sometimes it comes out this way. You really believe that? Okay, <laughs> and uh, that... Well, I thought that was hilarious, but anyway, um, the idea is that can intelligent people have faith is a legitimate question, um, because we live in a culture where um, that isn't always genuinely, genuinely accepted. In fact, there would be some people in our culture that would say, if you believe stuff by faith, it just means you're feeble-minded, because real people need um, to have everything proven to them every time, and to accept anything by faith just isn't realistic, and uh, it's denial of our higher, higher faculties. and faith is just a crutch for people who are too lazy to think for themselves. And it's like nothing could be further from the truth. And today I want to tell you why faith is necessary for our belief as a Christian, as well as I want to point out the fact that faith is uh, part of everybody's life. But at the top of your outline, and by the way, if you need a pen to fill in the blanks, just raise your hand. If you didn't grab a pen on the way in, our ushers will be glad to pass one down the road to you. So just keep your hand up and they'll pass a pen to you if you want to take some notes. There's an outline inside your bulletin you can follow along. But point one in that outline is this, we must always be ready to explain our faith in Jesus Christ with gentleness and respect. This is kind of a verse for the whole series. We've been doing this series FAQ, where we're answering questions. The idea behind answering questions is to make us feel prepared when people have questions for us. But Peter said our attitude um, needs to be this when people question us about our faith. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear, and then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. I broke up with a girl that I dated a long time in college. After I broke up with her, um, going to church, I would every time the minister would speak about something, they had a handout, something like this. I don't remember exactly what it looked like, but. Every time he would speak about keeping your promises or being kind or other things, I would circle it, put a note on it, and mail it to this former girlfriend and say, I wish you were here. Not well received, okay? Not well received. And she told me to stop sending those things. And she didn't even say it that nicely. Anyway, uh, because it's not a courtesy to go bang somebody over the head with your beliefs. We hate it when other people don't listen to us, don't care about us just want to ram something down our throats, we can't stand that. Well, let's not be that way. There's an old um, axiom that says this, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's pretty true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if we care about people and really want to let people know why we have a faith in Christ, then we ought to do that with gentleness and respect. I certainly want that to be how we approach this topic the whole issue of faith today, and uh, why it's important in our lives. And so I'm going to have a word of prayer for us and ask God to bless our time together, and we'll jump right in. Lord, I just pray that we will always have a ready answer and be ready to explain why you are the hope of our lives. And Lord, but I pray that our demeanor will be one of kindness and respect. Lord, I, I love it when people are respectful of my time and respectful of my opinion. I would certainly like to treat other, like to treat other people the same way. And so, Lord, I just pray that today you'll speak. You'll teach us some things we need to know about faith and its role in our lives. And, Lord, that you'll move me out of the way. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, to understand um, a little bit more about our relationship with you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So this morning we're talking about the issue of faith, and this is point two on your outline. Everyone lives by faith in something. If you've ever heard that faith is for the weak-minded... That's a common statement in our culture today, that Christians hang on to faith, but intelligent people have hard evidence and proof. Christianity just just accepts things by faith, and that's for feeble-minded people, and I want to challenge that greatly this morning. Christianity is not for the feeble-minded. Christianity is for very intelligent and thinking people. It's for every single person on earth, a relationship with Christ is. And I want to remind us that everyone lives by faith in something. At its very simplest definition, faith means trust. That's what faith means. If I have faith in something, I have trust in it. If I have faith in you, I trust you. If you have faith in me, you trust me. If I have faith in the butcher, I'll eat the hot dog. If I don't, I won't. In fact, any time that we eat at a restaurant, we are exercising blind faith. We don't know the cook, we didn't see the food that was prepared. It's reasonable to exercise that kind of faith, but sometimes um, we've spent an evening in uh, in the bathroom or other things following a time when our trust was misplaced. Anybody relate to this? Okay. All right. So we operate by faith. We do it every day. All relationships operate by faith. You can't get married without faith. In fact, if somebody betrays their marriage vows, we say they were unfaithful. They broke faith. They did. They broke your trust. And so... To say that faith is for the feeble minded, well, there's almost nothing we do. Every time you get on a jetliner, you're exercising faith. I don't know how to fly that thing. If they tell me it's going to Boston, I guess I'm going to Boston. I don't know. Fly at night, I can't tell where we're headed. And we exercise faith countless times a day. And so I don't let anybody ever tell you or buffalo you into this, well, faith isn't for intelligent people. No, we all have faith in something. And so here's what the Christians mean by faith. The Bible says faith is the confidence of things we hope for, that they'll actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we can't see. I mean, on a simple level, like the restaurant, I have faith that the food they prepared for me will be good for me, that it will taste good. I have faith when I start going to college that they'll give me a diploma. I mean, I can't see it yet, but I have confidence that it'll actually happen. And when you pay for your kids to go to college, you... Pray in faith. Okay, that's the way it works. It'll actually happen. They'll actually graduate. Still working on that one for a couple of them. Okay, anyway, Christians live by faith. So this should not be a shock to us. It's impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews 11.6, anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Is that an outrageous statement? No. It's impossible to have a relationship with anyone avoid of these terms. This is that sent that little verse can broken into two parts here. It's impossible, to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists. In other words, we have to believe that he is who he says he is. If I open up the Bible, I have to believe that the Bible describes that there's a creator God who made the universe, who made me. And if I'm going to have a relationship with him, I have to believe that what the Bible says about God is true. That he is who he says he is. The second part of that verse says that he rewards those who sincerely seek him, okay? I have to also believe that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. I have to believe he is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Well, that's outrageous. No, it's not. It's the same way in a relationship with a spouse. In order to be married to my wife, I have to believe she is who she says she is. If I find out that one day she's a secret CIA operative and her name is completely different, that would be shocking. And that would really have serious consequences for our marriage. I also have to believe that she's going to do what she said she's going to do. The big one here is she'll be faithful and married to only me. If I found out she had another husband on another side of the country or something like that, that would be a problem for our marriage too. Do we all agree? Well, you can't live by faith like this. I mean, we have to believe that God is who he says he is and he's going to do what he's going to do. Who can live with a world like that? We do it all the time with every relationship. So why would this be odd if we did this with God? It's not. And it's not for feeble-minded people. These are expectations that are normal, and we can't have relationships without them. Christians also believe, another dimension of faith, that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. We talked about this last week, and we're asking the question, can people be good enough to earn their way to heaven? The answer is no. We believe that we're saved by grace, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me and like you. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners, each and every one. If we try to earn heaven on our own, we'll never make it. And that's why Jesus had to come into the world. When he died on the cross, he died for my sins and for yours. He paid a penalty that was due me. He suffered so I wouldn't have to. He died so I could live. This is the good news of Christ. And so Christians believe this, and this is vital to us. Because otherwise we're going to be trying to compare ourselves to everybody and compete and talk about how great we are. Well, if it's we're saved by faith, then I'm no better than you and you're no better than me. And Christians have always said that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come because we're all sinners. And it's a reasonable thing for Christians to believe this because we know we sin. We all do things we know we shouldn't do. There's times when we are cowardly, there's times when we're dishonest, there's times when we're lazy. I can keep going if you all want to start feeling bad, okay? We're all sinners here. Well, how are we going to deal with that sin? How are we going to make that right? Well, the Bible says that comes through Jesus, by faith. You can't earn it. It's a free gift. You've got to acknowledge it. God sent his son to rescue you and me. And all the wrath that was due you and me was poured out on him. So Christians live by faith, unabashedly, we live by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 7. If you would, and there, that verse is quoted in articles on the internet, websites. Oh my goodness, how stupid Christians must be. Walking by faith, not by sight. Oh my goodness. Christians live by faith. And people laugh. Well, the next point I want you to understand scientists live by faith, they do. And if anybody's ever told you, oh, no, 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 only Christians live by faith, scientists, we have hard evidence for everything we believe. Well, I want to give you a quote by a very well-known physicist. He's Paul Davies. He is a writer, broadcaster, professor at Arizona State. And he sent shockwaves to the scientific community a number of years ago when he first made this statement. But he said he just needed to be intellectually honest with everybody. Here's what he said. Science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. Even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith, and you can underline that, the existence of a law-like order in nature, and that is at least, in part, comprehensible to us. Brilliant man. Nobody argues with his physics. And he's not the only one. I could line up many more. Do you know that in order for science to work, we have to believe that there is order in the universe? And this is a huge problem. If we believe the universe came from nothing, it isn't headed anywhere, and happened all by accident, why did everything accidentally fall into order? And why would we assume that things that are in order in our part of the galaxy are in order in another part of the galaxy or in another corner of the universe? Why would we ever assume that? It all happened by accident. And then there's another part to this whole thing. A second thing is, if everything happened by accident and everything fell into order... Well, think about this. It goes one dimension further. If we are just atoms that randomly collect, smashed into each other, and that's where our intelligence all came from, why would we ever assume that we would evolve to the point where we would be able to comprehend this order and that our comprehensions of it would be right? In fact, on the back of your bulletin, if you flip it all the way over, you'll find some quotes that we're going to discuss in connect groups this week, our small groups. I quote a geneticist, evolutionary biologist, pretty brilliant chemist here, um, J.B.S. Haldane. Uh, He wrote years ago, the problem that he had, one of the big problems he had reconciling science with his worldview was this, if the thoughts of my mind are just the motions of atoms in my brain, why should I believe anything it tells me, including the fact that it's made of atoms? Unless I accept it by faith. Now, if you talk with people about this, they'll say, well, no, those are just underlying assumptions for science. That's not faith. But by assumptions, they mean confidence that what we hope for will actually happen and assurance of things we can't see. Right, faith. The biblical definition of faith. All of science is based on faith. In fact, all the early scientists of modern science, Newton, Galileo, Kepler, described planetary motion, all of them said that the reason they expected the planets to move in order, the reason they expected the laws of gravity to be laws universally accepted and applicable, was because there was a creator who set them in motion. And because he was logical and in order, the universe that he created would be like him, logical and in order. They also assumed that the reason our reason could grasp this is because we're created in the image of the creator. There were laws because there's a lawgiver. We understand our father's business because we are his children. And that's precisely why they did it. When Newton wrote his Principles of Mathematics, his treatise on this, which is probably the most famous scientific work ever written, explaining gravitation, explaining planetary relationships, all these things, his motivation behind it was, he said, so that people might worship God. The better you understand physics, he reasoned, the better you would understand the creator who put things together. Just like if you understand music, the better you could understand Mozart and appreciate everything he put together. But yet in our day, we're told, no, if you believe in science, that if you believe in faith, and rather, or if you accept things by faith, you're anti-science. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christians aren't anti-science. They're not. I mean, I got a 8 o'clock service. I got in trouble. I read too many quotes. This was one of these things. I mean, I just went back and looked up all kinds of things. Here's um, Newton, the guy who was the first person to kind of construct calculus. I mean, he didn't take calculus. He invented calculus. <laughs> Bright, okay? Not stupid. Here's what he said. The most beautiful system of the, of the This most beautiful system of the sun, the planets, comets, could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he should be called Lord God or universal ruler. The supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, and absolutely perfect. Newton also said, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as a word of God and written by men who are inspired. I study the Bible every day. Newton. So if you ever hear, hey, only unintelligent people read the Bible, well, what about Newton? Oh, yeah. What about Kepler? He was another brilliant scientist. Johannes Kepler, you can Google him if you don't know who he is, but he was the one who helped Newton figure out a lot of the interplanetary relationships, how that works. The chief aim of all investigations, this is him. He lived in, uh, from 1571 to 1630. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. They believed in laws because there was a lawgiver. They believed they would have the reason to grasp this because we were created in God's image. And that's where science came from. Christians and scientists aren't at odds on this. Don't let anybody tell you that it to believe in God is to be anti-science. Newton didn't think so. Kepler didn't think so. I can go on and on, quote many more. And so every time I present one of these things, people always ask me and they'll say, well, yeah, but John, if what you say, if it's reasonable to believe in the Christian faith, to have faith in God, well, then how come more PhDs don't believe in it? Well, the same reason people, the same reason more people who don't have PhDs don't believe in it. They don't want to. They don't want to. Science doesn't have anything to do with it. You and I can agree to trust in God and surrender our lives to him or not. But to say that there's scientific proof that God doesn't exist, that's ridiculous. And Christians and scientists are not at odds. Now, there's a note here. Believing something doesn't make it true, and refusing to believe something doesn't make it false. And that's reasonable. People go, well, yeah, just, and people say this all the time, well, yeah, you believe something just because it's in the Bible, and that's why you think it's true. Mm -mm. No, I do believe the Bible is God's word, but I don't just accept things because there's no evidence for anything that God says is true. That's not right. We covered a lot of this, by the way, when we talked about how reliable is the Bible, The Bible, the historical accounts are based on real people who lived in real space. And there's lots of archaeological evidence for all this stuff. It's not made up fairy tales. There's no way I believe it. There's evidence for it. It makes it credible. And by the way, this argument works for science as well as it does for Christianity. If people say, well, believing in something doesn't make it true, not believing in it doesn't make it false, right? So when I talk about heaven or hell and you talk to somebody, I don't believe in heaven or hell. Okay, well, good. You don't need to worry about it then. Because you don't believe in it. It's not true. There you go. That's solved. I don't need a Savior to die on the cross for me. I'm not a sinner. Oh, good. Then there's no sin in your life. Okay. God, that's solved. Hmm. Really? Do you and I know people who never deal with guilt or shortcomings or feel like, hey, the world isn't as it should be? We're meant for something more? I mean, why are we here? Where are we going? What's the meaning of life? What happens to us after we die? Science can't answer these questions. Can't answer any of them. At all. Ever. And so if you and I are going to find answers to the things that really matter, we don't need to throw all this out. In fact, that brings us to point three. As Christians, we base our faith on credible evidence. That Jesus rose from the dead. Faith has to be tied to some evidence somewhere. And that's why Paul said in his writings uh, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, look, you want to shuck it down to the cob. If you want to say all that Christianity is, you want to boil it down to one key tenet of faith that you have to have, or else Christianity falls apart like a house of cards. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus came into the world to save us from sin. He said so. He said that if we had a relationship with him, if we believed in him, then we'd have everlasting life. He'd forgive our sins. He would die so we could live. He said so. He did miracles to prove it to people. But um, I want to go back to the scripture I passed. But despite, this is John 12, 37, if you guys can put that up there. Despite all the miraculous signs that Jesus had done, most of the people still didn't believe in him. But there was one sign that Jesus gave that was irrefutable. And that is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus said he would die, and on the third day, he would come back to life again. I mean, the ultimate proof of whether or not Jesus is who he claimed to be is whether or not he came back from the dead. Lots of people have been born. Lots of people have died. There were lots of people who died on Roman crosses. Only one came back, Jesus. The only way he could come back is if he's God, and if he's God, then he has the power to save us from our sins. And so here's what the Apostle Paul wrote If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is, faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. If there's no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter what you believe about Moses and the Israelites. It doesn't matter what you believe about heaven or hell. It doesn't believe any of that. None of that stuff matters unless Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Because he said he was the God of Abraham, he said he was the one who could take us to heaven and rescue us from hell. And if he isn't who he said he was, if he was just another guy or a great teacher, a great moral philosopher, well, then it does me no good. Because when I die, I still have to atone for my sins, and I can't. I need someone to save me. And so Paul says, this is the one argument you have to believe if you're going to be a Christian. It's essential. No resurrection, then Jesus really isn't who he claimed to be. Now we're back to again. We have to believe God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Jesus said he was the Son of God, and he said he was going to rise again. Didn't do those things, he's a liar. Or he was a nut nut cake. I mean, he was fruitcake. Claiming making outrageous claims. Or he was the Son of God, and he claimed to be. Now, why would we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we believe it on the testimony of reliable witnesses. Here's what Peter wrote about it. We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Peter, the one who denied him, was also, also witnessed his resurrection. If you look your outline over, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul saw him on a vision on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Most of those people are still alive. You can go check it out. We believe it because there were credible witnesses. Well, this is just the wishful thinking of a few people that saw Jesus. I mean, kind of like a mom whose son dies. And then, you know, one day at sundown, she used to watch him walk home from work every day. She thinks she sees, somebody, sees him walking home, and that must be him. It's just like that. It's just kind of a wishful hallucination. No. Because the disciples, remember, didn't think Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They were all terrified. They all deserted him. Even though he'd said it, they didn't believe. John 20 records the account for Thomas. That first Easter Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, the people who'd crucified Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them, and he said, Peace be with you. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when he saw the Lord, When they saw the Lord. One of the disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into and place my hand in the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, just as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side and don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. If this was all just the hallucinations of people who wanted to see Jesus so desperately that they kind of manufactured this thing, well, how do you explain Thomas who didn't believe it at all? He wasn't wishing for it. He was dead set against it. Well, this must have been written a thousand years later and written creatively. No. Go back to the first installment in this series where we talk about how the Bible was put together. These documents were circulated widely within just a few years. They could have easily been refuted. We have good historical evidence that that's not the case at all. These were actual eyewitness accounts. And you'll find people like Lee Strobel who set out to write a book called The Case for Christ He was an investigative reporter in Chicago and set out to prove this nonsense was false once and for all, to show people that by legal standards, you could never prove that Jesus rose from the dead. crazy thing is, as he wrote this thing, he became a Christian. He's not the only one. Josh McDowell, Evidence that Demands a Verdict, same thing. C.S. Lewis, in a a wonderful book called Mere Christianity, was an atheist for a long time. And the more he tried to argue against Christianity, against the existence of God, against the resurrection of Jesus, the more he found that there was lots of credible evidence for it. Evidence! If you go back and watch the first installment in the series, we'll talk about how you compare the biblical evidence to other historical documents. And that brings us to the note in your outline. All, all, you could underline the word all, Historical knowledge requires faith and reliable witnesses. I've talked about this before, and they go, you believe in Jesus literally rising from the dead? Yes, I believe that Jesus literally came to earth, became, God came to earth as a man, was born to Mary, who was a virgin at the time. He was raised as a child, grew up, performed mighty miracles, told us who God was, died on a cross for our sins, was buried in a tomb, Easter Sunday morning, he rose, appeared to his disciples over a period of about a month and a half, appeared to more than 500 people, ascended into heaven, and told them one day he's coming back, and I really believe he's coming back one day, and it's pretty soon. I believe all of it. He said, So were you there at the resurrection when he rose? I went, No. Did you see it? No. He goes, Well, I'm not going to believe it. I went, Okay. So I pull out a dollar bill. I go, Who's this on the dollar? He goes, George Washington. Really? You met him? Were you there when they drew this picture? How do you know that's George Washington? You know, that business of him crossing the Delaware. Well, I saw a painting in a museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah, every painting is accurate in that museum. Columbus discovered America? Really? Were you there? Did you see it? you going to trust this guy? He didn't even know it was America. I thought it was India. <laughs> what the heck? Why do you believe in him? Well, Seriously. Every historical event, you have to believe in it because somebody told you you weren't there. I mean, if you miss a wedding because you, you had to be out of town and, you, and a friend of yours got married, they walk up the next day with a ring. You get married? Yeah. I don't believe it. Didn't see it. <laughs> we got pictures. Pictures can be photoshopped. I'm not believing. Somewhere you have to trust, and that's why we have witnesses, A legal document, you get a notary public to witness the document. I can't believe in stuff because of witnesses. Well, then don't buy a house. I can't believe in stuff because of witnesses. Well, you better hope you never get on trial, you have to go to trial because they're going to bring witnesses out. It's how we do law, it's how we do contracts, it's how we determine all accuracy in history. All historical and legal documents depend upon witnesses, whether or not they're reliable. Please read books like these, many more, and decide for yourself. But do not listen to the crazy talk that's out there that Christianity is just based on faith with no evidence. No, the resurrection is the ultimate evidence that God came into our world. And if it's true, then Jesus, and Jesus did rise from the dead... There's hope of eternal life and forgiveness for our sins. If it's false, the whole thing's a sham, and you might as well leave right now. I'm telling you that's true. And that brings us to the next point. It's because our faith is also based on changed lives. Paul wrote to, in Colossians 1.16, The same good news that's came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace the grace through Christ. Well, how would that be an evidence of the resurrection? Because a relationship with Jesus changes us. He changes us from the inside out. You can't have a relationship with a dead guy. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And you can line up countless people who would tell you how their lives were changed, who worship him as their Lord. And by the way, let me go back again, because it's always, well, yeah, lazy people, foolish people, weak-minded people, yeah, like uh, Francis Collins, who was in the leadership of the Human Genome Project when they cracked that thing. You know, that simple-minded Ph.D. who cracked the human genome. Foolish guy. Here's what he wrote. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful, and it cannot be at war with itself Only we, imperfect humans, can start such battles, and only we can end them. Francis Collins wrote wrote that in a book entitled The Language of God. A scientist presents evidence for belief. Brilliant man. Not feeble-minded, needing a crutch. When they finally cracked the last part of the human genome, Collins was uh, quoted in other places where he said... It was a thrilling scientific discovery, but it was also a significant moment of worship for me. Sounds like Newton. The better you understand the laws of physics, the better you understand the creator of the universe. The more you understand how marvelously we made, the more you can worship the one who made us. Change lives. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. Evidence of the resurrection? You bet. <laughs> I've had people tell me things like this. They go, well, you know, Christians are just kind of caught in a permanent childhood. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, you believe in things like the Easter Bunny, and Christians believe in things like that too. And along with changed lives, I always go, really? How many adult conversions to belief in the Easter Bunny do you know of? People who, when they're 32, said, I'm believing in the Easter Bunny, chocolate ones. They're real, hiding eggs every Easter, I believe. How many adult conversions to that belief do you know of? The answer is zero. How many adult conversions to Christianity do you know of? Millions all over the world. Bus drivers, scientists, school teachers, farmers, moms, dads, kids, black, white, whatever color, doesn't matter. Why? It's just like the Easter Bunny. No, it's not. Well, I was just using that as a literary device. Well, stop using it. It's not true. People come to Christ because they need a Savior. It's not true. And the final final thing is, I believe there's a risen Savior because He lives in my heart. I have personal experience with Him. There was a blind man who met Jesus. Jesus did a mighty miracle. He healed this guy. He was more than 40 years old, been blind his whole life, born blind. One day Jesus met him, spit on the ground, made some mud, rubbed it on the man's eyes, told him to go wash. When he he washed, he came back seeing. Nobody could believe it. In fact, the religious leaders who hated Jesus didn't believe it. And so they brought him in to kind of grill him. And they said they called in the man who'd been born blind and they told him. Now, look, God should get the glory for this miracle because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Here's what he said. Listen to this. Well, I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I do know this. I was blind and now I see. He didn't have a lot of theology, didn't have a big explanation, but he was blind and now he could see. He had personal experience with the miraculous power of Jesus. And sometimes when I talk about how Jesus lived in my heart and changed my life, well, that's not valid. Personal testimony isn't valid witness. Really? We'll tell that to Jared in Subway. He holds up the big pants. We go, I'm eating at Subway. Well, that's not valid. That's just his testimony. Works. It's true. He didn't write a PhD on diet and nutrition. How can I believe this? Because he was fat, and now he's not. Well, how can I believe Jesus lives in your heart? I was a drunk, and now I'm sober. I was racist, and now I'm not. I was filled with hatred and bitterness, and now I'm filled with love. And I didn't do it to myself. Jesus came into my heart, and he changed me. Why is that not valid? Why? Because I didn't write a dissertation on the history of religion. So the man who could see it wasn't valid Now give glory to God. We know Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I only met him for a few minutes. But I'll tell you this, I've never seen anything in my life and I can see. It's valid. We have evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Real God entering real time, real space, dying on a real cross, in a real place his body, his real body being placed in a real tomb. It's not there on a real Sunday morning. He really appeared to real disciples and told them, I'm really going to go prepare a place for you. I want you to be really busy about the mission I've given you. I'm going to go up and prepare the place for you. When everything's ready, I'm really going to come back and get you really soon. So you ought to believe this. Really. We're not basing our faith on no evidence. We're basing our our faith on a risen Savior who changes lives, including mine. And we're told this by reliable witnesses who died for this. if they all made it up, then why were they willing to die for it? All the money they made. They didn't make money off of this. They ran for their lives. And one final point I want to bring us back to where we started on this whole day. When we talked about, hey, we need to do this with gentleness and respect, if I seem to get, well, not seem, but when I get loud, I'm talking here because I want you to understand the urgency behind this, but I don't want anybody to pick up a CD or something and throw it at somebody else. I want us to live out our faith. If we really believe in a risen Savior, then we believe He lives in our heart, and we believe that He has given us His Word, and so we want to live according to the principles of His Word. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote about this. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and say, Goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead, useless. Now some of them argue, well, now some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, well, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there's one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. By the way, the devil is not an atheist. He believes in God, just hates him. World War II, the United States believed in Hitler. We believed. We're just on the opposite side of the war. Don't ever let people tell you that just because they don't believe in heaven or hell, they don't have to deal with sin in their lives. Don't ever let people tell you that if you live by faith, you're feeble-minded. No, you're not. There are brilliant Christians all over the world proclaiming God's faith. There are people coming to Christ today. And maybe this would be a good day for you to do that, to surrender your life to Him. Maybe a good day for us to recommit our lives to Christ. You know, it's deeply concerning to me because I don't meet many people who are reasoned out of their faith. They just kind of drift away. Nobody really talked them out of their belief. They just quit going to church, and soon they stopped believing. We're going to talk some more about that next week. But I'd like to pray for us and ask God to convince us of the truth of his word. Would you pray for me, please? Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's our, all, our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And, Lord, we need to practice faith. Faith is not unreasonable. Lord, there are certain things we hope for that we haven't seen yet. But, Lord, you have given us evidence. You sent your son into the world. You really rose from the dead. That's hard proof that you love us. It's hard proof that you care about us. And Lord, we want to share the good news all over the world. I've seen you change many people's lives. Lord, you changed mine. And I want the whole world to know that. I thank you that you changed the lives of the disciples. Your Holy Spirit is living and active in this world today and living and active in me. I pray that you would convince us of the truth and give us gentleness and kindness. But I pray also that we would read and learn for ourselves and develop convictions. We live in a day, Lord, when all of a sudden now, it's the in thing, the vogue thing, to talk about religion as if it's something bad. And the people of faith are feeble-minded. And God, I pray that you would remind us that is not true. You did indeed come to rescue the feeble-minded and the brilliant the old and the young, and people all over the world. I pray that we would be faithful in carrying out that message. Just in a moment of silence, if there's something between you and the Lord, something you know that needs to change in your life, do you confess it now and say, God, forgive me for my sin. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die and pay the penalty for my sins. If you have a friend who's far from God, won't listen to things of the Bible, would you pray for him or her? Ask God to make Himself real, to reveal Himself. Just in a moment, silence. Pray for one person right now, far away from God. Oh God, we come before you and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is living and active in our hearts today. We pray these things in the marvelous name of Christ, the strong name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.